Once again, I bid you good morning. It is, well, how do I say this honestly? Um, it is good to be back with you. I, I'll be honest with you. It is good to be back with you. I'm excited to be here. I'm ready to preach. I'm ready to get back in the pulpit. But I was just in Florida. So, like, it was better before. So I'll be honest with you. It is good to be here, but I would rather be elsewhere. Um, no, it is good to be here this morning. I am glad to see all of your wonderful faces. Uh, it, is, it is good to come home and to be back here to, to share with you all and to connect with the family of faith. And so we're, we are excited, and I look forward to what God is going to continue to do over the next couple weeks and how God is going to speak with us as we move further down the line into the Easter season as we move towards the resurrection. Uh, as we turn our attention now to the Word of God, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for the truth that we have sung this morning about uh, the amazing, marvelous truth of your grace. And the reality that death has been arrested, that death no longer has power, death no longer has sting. And even as we're going to see this morning, because of Jesus, Lord, our trip to the grave is but a moment. And Lord, death has no power over us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. God, we pray that you would speak to us and reveal to us the truth of your word and the truth of the risen Christ today. And Lord, may we have the faith of Mary. May we not miss the moments when you move around us because of our own preferences, priorities, or perspectives. But God, may we have open minds and open hearts that we might see you and experience your goodness in the land of the living. Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have entered the throes of the midlife crisis. We talked about that briefly a couple weeks ago when I revealed the truth of how I feel about my hair. Now, I realize that there are many of you that feel like I have plenty of hair and I could move it, maneuver it in some ways, and you would rather I have more hair. I would rather have more hair, too. But I, I got reached the point in my life where I had to make a business decision, and this is where I'm at. But if I'm to be honest with you, it does bother me. Like that I'm, my hair is now gone, that my shoulder's been broken, and the doctors keep looking at it and saying, oh, we don't know, you're just old. And, and I go in for the last year for the, the, the physical, and they're like, hey, you're short, you're fat, and you're old. It's just the way it happens in life. And that's kind of been my life for the last couple years, and I'm trying to settle into that. Uh, but, but middle age, midlife has not been my jam thus far. Don't love it. I mean, I'm told it beats the alternative, but heaven does seem to be better, right? Um, not in a hurry to leave, but I'm just saying I understand the difficulty of midlife. To anyone that I called old before or, or laughed or chuckled about when I was younger, I apologize sincerely. None of you are here, but I, boy, did I make a mistake, right? It, life is hard sometimes, and we get to a point where we realize that. But there is one point of, of aging that has worked for me that I like. I've realized, particularly in our trips to Florida, that, that one thing that I really, really, really enjoy is bird watching. Anybody like watching the birds? Some of you are like, mm -mm, you are old, right? I get it. I get it. Like you might on any given day drive past the parking lot of First Baptist Church in Seymour, Indiana, particularly when the cranes are around, and you will see me standing in the parking lot doing one of these numbers. I am not lost. I am not having a senior moment. I am watching the birds. 
Sometimes it's the, it's the crane. Sometimes it's a, 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 an eagle that is soared over and is above the parking lot. Sometimes you'll see me staring across at the woods. And one of the things that I love doing when we go down to Florida is just getting on my in-law's golf cart and driving around what I like to call Jurassic Park and looking at all the nature, right? you got the alligators that could eat you on the ground and birds that will eat what's left when the alligators are done. That's my kind of world. And so we drive around and we look at these birds and, and I, I, I find that I've, I'm getting better at seeing them. But what I'm not really good at to this point is helping others see them. Any bird watchers ever have that, that problem? Like where you hear the bird and you can see the bird, but no matter what you can do, you cannot point the bird out to the other person. Anybody ever had that problem? That is my issue all the time. Like I will hear the bird and I will turn and I'm on it and I'll get the bird and I'm like, it's right there. Like just... Look past this tree, it's like four trees back, two trees to the right, four branches up from the middle, and then a little bit to the left. Like, no, I can't see. All right, Robin, just move two inches this way. Like, follow my finger. Like, my finger is right above my finger. Well, I'm shorter than you. Okay. Above my finger, I just see branches. Like, there's a flower and a branch. No, that's not a flower, that's a bird. No, that is a flower. The, the bird is behind the flower. Here, well, let, just stand on my knee, and then maybe you'll be able to see it there. Like sometimes we just can't get past our own perspective. And sometimes it's me that can't see it. My mother-in-law will see something and she'll point it and I'm super frustrated because no matter how I, I move or turn from my perspective, from my point of view, I can't see what's there. I can hear it. I know something's going on. I know that there's something that is worthwhile for me to see. But, but for some reason, because of my point of view, my perspective, or my inability to move with the moment, I am incapable of seeing what's there. And then before I know it, oh, the bird's flown away. Well, now you missed it. Right? Now you missed it. And then everybody's frustrated because the moment was there, the expectation was there, the anticipation was there. But, but because of my own perspective, my own point of view, and my inability to move in appropriate ways, I miss the moment. And I think we see that often in the Bible, particularly when it comes to Jesus. That, that people really struggled with Jesus, particularly as he came towards the end of his life. That people really struggled to get out of their own way, to adjust and adapt their perspective and their point of view based upon what Jesus was revealing to him, them and what Jesus was doing in a moment. They struggled to get out of their own way so that they could perceive what was happening in the moment. This morning's sermon is entitled, Don't Miss This. Don't miss this. And we're going to look at three different examples revolving around and going through the triumphal entry, right? Palm Sunday. I realize I'm a week ahead, but that's okay because we've got, we've got the choir singing next week. So we don't have as much time. So we're going, to, we're going to do all this stuff around the triumphal entry. And we're going to look at three different examples where people close to Jesus and people that were in opposition to Jesus maybe missed the moment because they couldn't get out of their own way. And I want us to ask the question for ourselves, so I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here, but I want us to ask the question of ourselves, how many times in our lives do we miss what God is doing in a given moment because it doesn't fit with our expectations? How often do we miss what God is saying because it doesn't come in the way that we expected or anticipated? How many times do we miss the great movement of God, all the while praying for and anticipating, how often do we miss it because we just 
can't get out of our own way, and we're so intransigent that we can't get to the point of view where we can see it and can follow appropriately. Well, let's look. We're going to look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Well, the next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now when the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up. We, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So we have here what, what scholars would call three different pericopes. Three different, we'll call them scenes, right? Three different scenes and three different settings where things are revealed to different groups about Jesus. The first setting is Jesus at a dinner with Lazarus and his family and some people that, that knew about him being in town. The second scene is with Jesus and his disciples and the great crowd that had come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And the last scene is a great crowd that now includes Greeks and Jews. And in each setting, Jesus is revealing truth about who he is and what is coming and the reality of the salvation that he's bringing about and how he's doing it. So let's look at each of these. The first starts there at the beginning of chapter 12. And the key character beyond Jesus, there are several that kind of come in and out, but is Mary. And Mary prepared Jesus' body for burial. Mary prepared Jesus' body for burial. Now Jesus was and remains someone worth celebrating. Would we agree with this? I mean, I would hope so, right? That's why we're here, isn't it? We're, we're here to be encouraged, yes, to be challenged, yes. But it all revolves around the truth that Jesus is who he said he is and will do what he said he'd do, right? That's why we're here. That's why we are Christians. We, are, we bear his name because we believe that Jesus Christ is the source of all life and godliness and that it is through coming and, and being in concert and in relationship with him and his church that we grow and we are moved along in our lives as we attempt to follow him. We, we would agree with that statement that Jesus was and remains someone worth celebrating. Kurt, that first point is Mary prepared Jesus' body for burial. Is it not on there? Okay, never mind then. Just the first point was Mary prepared Jesus' body for burial. So here we see in verse 1 that they are a week from Passover. But of even greater note than just the fact that Passover is coming is what has happened just before. Right? That, that just a few weeks earlier, Lazarus had been dead, but is not now. Right? J just weeks earlier, Lazarus lay rotting in a tomb. And now he sits reclining at the table. That's a pretty big turnaround, right? That's a pretty big turnaround from I'm dead and everything is done to I'm hanging with my homie Jesus enjoying a meal in my own house. This is a big jump. I mean, last week you, you probably heard the verse in John eleven thirty nine. 39. It's one of my family's favorite verses that we like to paraphrase to apply to others where, where it says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Hey, four days later, hey, open the tomb. No, Lord, he stinketh. And scent is, once again, that, that, that seems inconsequential, but scent and the idea of death are about to take center stage again. Because Lazarus lay in the tomb just a few weeks early, earlier, stinking the place up. Which you got to wonder, like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, did Lazarus come out smelling like death? Like, or did Jesus heal that too? 
Because that would be a rough way to wake up, right? Like you like have no idea what just happened for the last four days. You hear a loud, booming voice, hey, it's time to get up, buddy. And you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, what died in there? Well, that was you, bud. It was in fact you, Lazarus, that had died in there. But here they are sitting at a table. The other three characters that kind of jump to the front are then Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Martha is doing what Martha does, right? She's serving it up. She's making sure everybody's taken care of, making sure everyone has something to drink, everyone has something to eat, doing what Martha is supposed to be doing. Lazarus is doing what Lazarus do, do, like laying at or on a table. And then you have Mary jumps into the, the scene, doing what Mary does and going over the top with whatever it's going to be. And as they're reclining around the table, enjoying this fine dinner by Martha, Mary comes out of nowhere and douses Jesus with some serious essential oils. Sitting there and she just comes and pours it all over his feet. Not not exactly appropriate table topic of conversation, right? Because Jesus knows this is about burial. And not exactly the interactive activity you want during a dinner. Some incredibly uh, odoriferous, whether it smells good or not, thing being poured all over the house. Not awesome, Mary. Like, read the room. And it says that the whole scent filled, the scent filled the entire house. Do y'all remember Axe Body Spray? Does, does anyone remember the commercials that, that, when, that came out when Axe Body Spray came, first came out? I, I remember with great detail. And it's one of those things that I don't just remember intellectually in my mind. Like my nose still burns at the reality of Axe Body Spray. The camp director in the room is like, oh, Lord, yes. Like, may God burn it and send it to hell where it belongs. I agree. Terrible. Why is it terrible? Well, in the commercials, they used to advertise what they called the axe effect. And their tagline with it was, when you smell good, good things happen. Right? And there was a true axe effect. But I would argue that it was distinctly bad. And here was the axe effect. There were a bunch of middle school boys that didn't enjoy bathing at the time. Now, I know that middle school boys today are much more refined and better, have better hygiene. But at the time, in the early 2000s, middle school boys, if they hated anything above all else, it was bathing, especially on a youth group trip. Then axe body spray came out. And suddenly, they had an alternative to bathing. Because now, they didn't have to wash away the stinketh. They just had to have something that stinketh more. And so you would come into a boy's room, and they would just start spraying it, and it would be this cloud. Like, you did not just smell Axe Body Spray. It was an experience. It was more like, it wasn't just a spray. It was, it was a presence And it would fill whatever vehicle or whatever room that you were in, and it was awful. I've got to imagine that this has to be a similar thing. Because here you have, and it tells us in the the passage, that that it is pure, pure nard, right? That that it it is unadulterated, uncut oil. Now, what a reasonable person would do is they would take a drip or two of oil and they would drop it in some water and they would cut it. And then they would sell that bottle of oil with some other unscented oil and they would sell that for big money. Which is why Judas brings up what he's bringing up. Like, oh, Mary, what are you doing here? Because Mary 
Mary just has no chill, and she dumps the whole bottle on Jesus. Fills the whole house. The axe effect, first century A.D. Now it's a party, right? One pint, 16 ounces, or one pound of uncut, scented oil all over Jesus, all over the floor, all over Mary's hair. Mary's act was incredibly extravagant, expensive, and quite honestly offensive. Now, we sit here in, in our modern setting, and we might play a little bit of holier than thou. We're like, oh, Judas. It's easy to look at Judas in hindsight, knowing what we know, but know, know that no one knows that Judas is the utter jerk that he is. At this point, he's just one of the twelve. But if we're honest and we take away the, the editorial comments in the text and we just take everything prima facie, right? It's just face value. Would we not be a little upset in that setting as well? You're sitting enjoying a nice dinner. Like, listen, I know it's true because if I put three drops of essential oil on my neck because I'm having a migraine, some of you lose your minds, right? Like, we, we struggle with just a little bit of scent. This, oh, man, that smells so strong. Like, this is a pound, this is a ton of this stuff. It was offensive, not just in the, the cost of it, but in, in, in the confrontation that it created to, to their oral factory sensor, sensors. Like their noses are probably burning. I, I would argue, and I, I would say that this is, this is probably safe, that Judas was not the only person in the room going, Mary, what are you thinking? Judas points out, what, what we need to know here. He makes a shrewd observation that Mary's actions are a waste of valuable resources. Now, it doesn't make sense to us. I mean, we can get, we can get on board with the, the, the reality of an overtaking scent coming into a room. That makes sense to us. But what doesn't translate for us is the reality of how first century banking worked. Coinage was not the primary form of currency. So what people would often do is buy like a vial or a, a vase full of, of oil because it kept in the climate for long periods of time. Judas says, hey, that's a year's worth of wages. Like put in modern day's terms, she spilled 30, a $30,000 bank account on the ground. Just poured it out. Every once in a while, JJ will be talking about, or Michaela will talk about something that they want to do or something they want to get. And I'll make the joke, and perhaps you've said it or heard it before. We'd be better off just lighting a $100 bill on fire than buying that. That's $3,000 of $100 bills that Mary just spilled all over the floor. That's some milk that you can cry over. But Jesus was worth it. Jesus deserved it. And the truth was that now was the only time they had to do it. Now verse 7, the wording kind of hits us weird in the English. It says, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Well, that kind of hits weird, doesn't it? Because like, if it was supposed to be saved for the burial, it's like, Mary, you're like a week and a half early, kid. Like, you got to schedule that a little bit better. But Jesus, Jesus is understanding something that the rest of us miss on the surface. That, that had we been in the room, we certainly wouldn't have understood. 
Jesus knew that if he was going to be prepared for a burial, this was about the only time he had. Because old boy was not going to be in the tomb very long at all. They weren't going to have a chance later. If they were going to honor Jesus appropriately in his burial, if they were going to give him his, his funerary rites, now was the only time they had. On the surface, it may have seemed excessive and brash to everybody else. But she was doing exactly what God had intended. Her actions were absolutely appropriate and necessary, according to Jesus. Is there any life more worthy of celebration than the life of God made flesh? God who dwelt among us. The man who lived a perfect life. The one who opened for us a path to eternal life. There's a warning inherent in this. We, we must be careful not to let, allow our personal priorities and preferences distract us from what God is doing in our midst. Judas's stated purposes were actually noble. Now, we, I understand the, the, the undercurrent that it is found in the editorial comments reveals the fact that his purposes were nefarious. But on the surface, can anyone argue with the value of taking $30,000 and using it to help the poor? Anyone in the room want to argue that that's a bad use of funds? Anyone in the room want to argue that pouring $30,000 down the drain is a better use of the funds? Not one of us, right? But somehow Mary sees and senses something that the rest of us maybe would have missed. Certainly something that Judas would have missed. The poor would always be there, but Jesus physically would not. Judas isn't thinking about Jesus in the moment, nor would I. He's thinking maybe a little about the poor, but he's really thinking about himself. And I would argue that at a good, a good portion of the time, that's our problem as well. That our priority is not what's best for Jesus. That our priority is not what's best for the growth of the kingdom. That our priority is not the gospel imperatives or making much of Jesus, but our priority becomes to be skewed by our own personal preference. And our own personal prominence and what we think we deserve or what we think we want or what we think would be best for us or those around us. But Christ, if he is in fact our king, should be above all else, should he not? In every aspect of our lives, not just our finances, but the very substance of our souls should be poured out in service to Jesus Christ. Jesus had warned them that his death was coming but that he would be raised from the grave. He told them that their days were numbered. He needed to be celebrated now. And unlike Lazarus, Jesus wouldn't be dead long enough to let the stink set in. In the moment, all Judas and maybe many others in the house could see was the monumental waste of resources. And because of his limited perspective, he missed the message in the moment. But then we see a second moment that is, is made available to us in, in the coming days. And we see the people paraded Jesus into Jerusalem as king. 
Right Next week we'll have the choir singing, but we'll also have one of our favorite moments from the spring season as the, the children will come in and they will parade around with their palm branches. Right, We love to see the kids parade and celebrating and we're singing the songs and it's wonderful. And, and it, it comes to this historical event that we see the people parading in and the whole point of that parade is recognizing that Christ is in fact the coming Messiah, that his kingdom has come. But but. What's interesting inherent in the text of John 12 is that there are two very different perspectives being presented to us. The first is the perspective of the people. And I want to be clear that that perspective and those people includes not just the general Hebraic crowd, but even the disciples themselves. The text tells us that even the disciples didn't get it at the moment. That not till Jesus ascended did they finally like have things click for them. But we have the perspective of the people, and then we have the perspective of Jesus himself. For, for the army of worshipers marching into Jerusalem, the parade with Jesus at the head was a sign of revolution. That a rebellion was finally coming, that the messianic savior was finally there, and that he was going to overthrow the Roman occupiers, that he was going to march into Jerusalem and set himself up as the king right then, and then the battles were going to begin, and the revolution was on. And there were a lot of people, like for scale, the Jewish and Roman historian Flavius Josephus estimates, he was a contemporary of Jesus, and he estimates that at the time, possibly 2.7 million people were in Jerusalem for the festival. 2.7 million people. Like at that number, you don't even have to be a very good army to do something, right? 2.7 is a lot now, but it was really a lot then. Now, even if it's a bit of an exaggeration, that's a lot of people. And, and a lot of these people probably knew who Jesus was, right? For three years, Jesus has been on a, a, a Judean countryside speaking tour. And everywhere he goes, he's doing these amazing miracles, demonstrating that there's something special about this guy. Right? And it's, it's not just natural talent. It's one thing had Jesus come in and they recognized as they did at various points in his life, hey, this guy speaks with authority. He's got a way with words and he can move people like no one else can. That is a natural ability, right? But the fact is that Jesus didn't just have the natural ability. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's healing all the sick. He's raising people from the dead. He's turning water into wine. Wherever he went, that's where the party was. Literally. Crowds are continually coming in. So many of these people had, had seen or heard Jesus speak. And those that hadn't are hearing about the miracles. Because remember, just a few weeks earlier, Lazarus was dead, but now he's not. And people could even point to him. Hey, come here. I want to show you this guy. See that guy there? He was dead for like four days and in the tomb. And Jesus, that guy over there was like, hey, come out. And Lazarus came walking out of the grave. Like if that doesn't convince you to join the cause, I don't know what will. Evidence is everywhere. Jesus, and that's important for us because Jesus had professed to be the Messiah, right? He had made this audacious claim. But the miracles back it up. Who's going to question it? And so no one does. Like, 
put this in context. Even the Pharisees didn't necessarily deny the supernatural reality of who Jesus was. They just didn't like it. Why? Because it was cutting into their pocketbook. It was cutting into their fame and their prominence. But here Jesus comes, marching into town, and and people in that region were and remain ready for a good rebellion, right? Uprisings are like a, you got to keep up with the paper because they are coming and going left and right over that. That region has historically been known as a hotbed for military activity. So the people see Jesus coming on this donkey, and the people start shouting fighting words. Hosanna, which means save us now. And blessed is the king of Israel. We might retranslate that. Long live the king. In a world where the the profession of national unity and loyalty was Caesar is Lord. Save us now. God save the king. Long live the king. Those, Those were rebellious words. Those were fighting words. The people are there for it. They're ready to go. They're waving their palms at the passing leader, which was a national symbol, placing them down before him, which was a sign of their affirmation of his leadership and calling. And their understanding of how the Messiah was to work based on their reading of Scripture was that the promised king would come in power to overthrow the oppressors by force. And they were ready to roll. But that's their perspective. That, that this parade igniting the revolution was here and that they were marching on to battle. As they talk about marching on to Zion, it's not a metaphorical thing. They literally were ready to go to battle and die. To fight for the rise of their kingdom. But what was Jesus' perspective? Well, note that Jesus comes in on a donkey. For Jesus, the parade was an announcement of a mission of peace. A warring king would not have been caught dead on a donkey. Right? Think about all of the the, the fairy tale storybook um, movies and, and, and books that are out there, right? Like Prince Charming, the flowing hair, right? The the swole body. And not swollen like middle age way, but swollen like he's got muscles. The sword and the glinting armor. Now, you put that on a donkey, right? It doesn't work. What is a shining knight supposed to be riding? A noble steed or stallion. Exactly. We know how it goes. But this is more like Shrek and donkey, right? Like, ain't nobody expecting that anything of this. Like, what's going on? But the people are like, hey, you take what you can get. Beggars can't be choosers. But Jesus comes in on a donkey. Jesus wasn't exactly what they expected. He certainly wasn't, in the end, what they desired. But he was exactly what had been advertised and promised. Here in John 14 and 15, John quotes from Zechariah 9.9. It says in verse 14 and 15, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Well, why does Zion not have to be afraid? Because the king isn't coming in war. The king is coming in victory. The king is coming on a mission of peace. Which should make sense to us, should it not? 
Because he is, in fact, the prince of peace. Jesus is sending and affirming a clear message to those who are willing to see it. That Jesus, the prince of peace, came to earth on a mission to bring peace between God and man and between man and man. Both the crowd and Jesus' own disciples were so caught up in their own excitement and expectations, however, that they missed the message entirely. Verse 16 tells us that they all thought it was go time. It says, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. They all thought it was time for war. They all were battle ready. The disciples thought they were about to become generals in Jesus' new kingdom army. Even to the moment that Jesus ascends, that's still the disciples' thought. If you, if you look at Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples are standing there and they say, Hey, Lord, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? As Jesus is getting ready to go, they're like, so now's go time, right? Now we're going to do this. Even after Christ had died and been resurrected, they still expected a rebellion. And Christ tells them, that's none of your business. That's not how my kingdom is going to work. You're going to receive power, but it's going to be power to be my witnesses, to be my martyrs, quite literally. To the, through the witness of, of sacrificially giving your life, not through taking of the lives of others. Christ's actions, though, aligned with Scripture and provided a different and more accurate and more desirable message about the Messiah. Jesus, it had been what Jesus had declared in word and deed, that he came not to judge but to serve, not to destroy but to bring life, not to bring war but to bring peace. And they missed it. Why? Because it didn't align with their point of view or their preferences. How often have we ignored or missed what God has asked of us or missed where God was moving and how he was moving because it didn't align with our expectations or desires? Because we thought we deserved more or were promised better. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if what God is doing and our expectations don't align, it is not God's actions that need to change, but our expectations. And we need to align our expectations with the truth of God's word, not with our preferences and our priorities. Jesus predicted his sacrificial death on the cross. At least twice to this point in the book of John. We see it at least three times in the book of Mark. It was not something that Jesus was shy about. Jesus told them, hey look, I know you're expecting a conquering king. But what you're going to get is a crucified and living savior. It's not going to look like you think it should. Let's, let, let's be honest. When has what God has ever done aligned with what we thought should happen? Does the Bible not say that his ways are higher than our ways? That his thoughts are greater than our thoughts? That we can't comprehend what God is doing? That it's not going to make sense to us? But Jesus predicted his sacrificial death on the cross twice. And he gives two different illustrations here to, to try to paint a picture for them. This idea of planting and burying a seed. You, you have to bury a seed to grow a plant that will produce, right? 
It's a reality of farming. And Jesus, Jesus uses the, the illustration of death, that a part of the plant has to literally die and fall and be buried into the ground for a new plant to grow and to continue to propagate. Yeah, that's, a pro, that's a principle that we can get right now, right? I get that the frost continues to, as Robin likes to say, the frost continues to be on the pumpkin. But that there is the reality of spring all around us, that new life is sprouting, and we can look at our flower beds and see those, those bulbs trying to push up through the, the, the earth. We can see the roses beginning to, to produce and bloom. We can see the, the new buds on the trees. We see this new life, and we understand that there is this cycle of death and life of falling to the ground and rising up that God has built into nature itself. And Jesus claimed that he himself was the seed that would fall and be planted in order that eternal life might grow and be made available in the lives of those who believe and follow. A seed will follow and fall and be planted, but new life will spring forth. The second illustration Jesus gives is, is the clear declaration that he would be lifted up on a Roman cross. Verses 32 and 33 says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Once again, as we said a couple weeks ago, the crowd understands that he's talking about death, that he's talking about crucifixion. It's the same wording he used in John 8, 28. The struggle is and remains real. Note that Jesus didn't necessarily want to die. Jesus didn't want to suffer, but he wasn't willing to sidestep it either. Even this early in the game, Jesus essentially says, Father, whatever you want. Shall I say, he says in verse 27, Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I came. Father, glorify your name. God, do whatever you've got to do to bring about your purposes through me. The same prayer should be true of us. That we may, down deep in our heart, not want to do what's before us but that we still offer ourselves on the altar for God's service. Jesus' drive to obey the Father and bring him glory by serving his purpose has overpowered his personal preference and self-preservation. And these people understand what Jesus is saying. They hear a voice from heaven, literally hear a voice from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. But they still miss the message. How crazy is that? That they literally hear the voice of God. They still don't get it. It's easy for us again to look at it and say, man, they're so dumb. How could they miss that? Like God literally, if God were to literally speak to me, I'd get it. If I'd get it. Would you though? Would you? It struck me as I was studying this passage and I've been reflecting upon this verse in, in verse 28 here. It struck me how often people in the Bible heard the voice of God but either failed to recognize it, failed to receive it for it, what it was, or asked for God to stop it altogether. I mean, it's, it's a regular feature that, 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 that people hear the voice of God and miss it altogether. Notice what happens in the text. They hear the voice of God, and what do they do? They explain it away. The voice of God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And someone says, hey, did you hear that thunder? That's just thunder. Like, don't, yeah, I, I heard it, but it, was just, it just must be a storm. Others are like, no, it was an angel. It was an angel. No one accepts it for what it is, that it's the voice of God. And, and who does Jesus say the voice is for? 
Jesus says specifically, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. So we can't say that, well, they didn't hear the voice because they weren't meant to hear it. Jesus clearly says, that voice was for you. Like, how do you miss it twice over there? Like, their, their mistake is doubled there. Not only have they heard the voice of God, but Jesus has pointed them to the voice of God, and they're still like, no, thunder. They understood what Jesus said, but refused to accept it because it didn't align with what they believed about the Messiah. They argue with Jesus, having heard the voice of God saying, I'm going to glorify you in the way that you're saying, I'm with you, Jesus. Their follow-up to Jesus' comment is, hey, we've heard from the law that the, Moses, the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? This isn't our Messiah. Hashtag not my president. It's not the one that I wanted, not the way that I wanted. I, I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote for you, Jesus. And we laugh about that. But, but is that not how we act sometimes? That we read and we understand the truth of God's word and it doesn't align with our social understanding or the structure of how we want things. And so we either manipulate it to fit what we can understand and explain, we ignore it, or we explain it away. Well, that doesn't align with what I think. We have 20 verses that tell us a thing, but that one verse that works for our priority, we're just going to focus on that, which is exactly what these first century Jews do. They're going to hold on with all they have to their expectations of the Messiah. It makes me wonder, though, rather than throw stones, it makes me have, have sympathy and pity, and it makes me a little concerned for myself. How many times have I heard the voice of God and either ignored or explained it away in my own life because it wasn't what or how I wanted it? Have you ever considered that? Do, because we say that, right? We say that we believe that God still speaks today. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God still desires to speak to us? That God is still working and moving in very real ways in this world? Then, then why is it that so often you and I and myself, I found myself doing it, are praying, God, please speak to me. Please reveal yourself to me. I wonder if God isn't saying, I have. Like over and over and over again. Like I'm screaming at you and you're like, it's thunder. It's just a season of storm in my life. And God's like, no, that's my voice. I'm trying to move you. I'm trying to reveal myself to you. I'm trying to, to get you to do something or to follow me. I'm revealing myself. Why can't you see this is for you? We have to take care not to miss the message in the moment. We see that many believed, but that many more missed the message in John 12, 11, and 19, we see people believing, so much so that the, the Pharisees and the leaders are saying, everybody's turning to him, which it clearly is an exaggeration. Because Jesus goes on, we won't read it, at the end of chapter 12 to talk about the, the, the rash of unbelief. And we know, looking even further down, that just a couple passages later, that that unbelief is going to turn. Those, those cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord, and blessed is the King of Israel, are going to turn to crucify him. That's the warning that I constantly am, am confronted by as I come to this season of Easter. We love to look for the resurrection. We love to celebrate the coming of Christ the King. And we love to talk about the failure of those who called for crucifixion. But understand that the same that celebrated Christ and proclaimed him King were the same voices that cried crucify him. 
And that, there's a very fine line that divides the two. We need to take care that we don't miss the message in the moment. We can stand firm in our own preferences, perspectives, and priorities and have the life we think we want. Or we can follow the example of Jesus and accept new and eternal life by grace through faith. Jesus has given us the information and evidence to prove who he is and why he came. The question is, will we accept his invitation to believe and to follow as children of God? Or will we put it to the side? Will we put to the side our old life so we can accept the new and eternal life he offers? The truth of Jesus is in the message. The truth of a Savior that came to bring peace. The truth of a Savior that came to bring life from death. The truth of a Savior who overcomes death and brings about resurrection. But the truth of a Savior who suffered and brought about victory through death and defeat. Not through violence and victory. The truth of a Savior who brings about peace, not war. Are we willing to accept the Jesus of the Bible? Or will we continue to fight it because it doesn't fit our expectation? May we continue to move and adjust and adapt our perspective and our position in order that we might see God clearly and follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we might be his witnesses and the world might know his grace. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. I thank you for the truth of your life. Thank you for the truth of your death. I thank you for the gift of the great salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through the truth of your word this morning. And that as we reflect, we would be reminded of the greatness of your glory and the reality of your continued movement and work in this world. May we follow you May we humbly come to you asking you to speak and be willingly ex accepting the truth that you reveal to us, not holding on to our own expectations and preferences, but submitting to your leadership as our King and God. Speak to us as we continue to worship. Reveal to us ways that we need to change and encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.